This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Our guest today is Jawad Hassan. He's the CFO of Axon, that's a $6 billion public safety technology company. In his wonderful new book, What They Didn't Tell Me, Jawad shares excellent career and leadership advice by telling us stories from his own life. He mentions his good times, like when he stepped into really big jobs in his 30s, but he looks much more closely at his challenges. Jawad describes how he learned to chart his own course. And in this discussion, he offers good advice about how you can chart yours. Jawad, your book is great. Uh, The book is What They Didn't Tell Me, and it is a book about leadership and uh, career, but it reads in places like a novel, at least for a a career nerd like me. I found it really gripping and fun, and uh, it was a very good read. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I had a lot of fun writing it. Well, part of um, what the book about is of things that happened to you, and part of it is advice, and we're going to get to that advice, but it's your story that makes it um, so compelling. So before we get to some of the, the good suggestions you have. Can you just tell us about a bit about your career story? You've got a really big job as the CFO of Axon now, but you worked your way from the beginning. What's the story? Yeah, so I, I started my career uh, 20 years ago, almost uh, to the month. I uh, graduated in, in May of 2001, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I talk about it in the book how my parents, they were immigrants from Pakistan. They had hoped that I was going to be a doctor, an engineer. They were heartbroken when I told them that I was going to be an economics major. And I I started the workforce. I got into the workforce with GE, just wanting to really learn and um, just get smarter about business and get a financial background. Um, I was an economics major, but really didn't know the nuts and bolts of accounting. And so I thought getting a good strong foundation in finance would help me in my career. And that's pretty much how I started and didn't really have any other sort of North Star other than that. And along the way, I just had a fantastic experience at GE. I was there for 13 years. GE is a bit of a different company now, but when I was there, uh, Jack Welch was actually still the CEO for a few months um, after I started. And many of the leaders and mentors that I learned from were Jack Welch disciples. And it was, as you might imagine, just a fantastic learning ground in a, in a place to uh, learn about leadership, really, not just management. And so I, you know, the first 13 years of my career, I was there and got an opportunity to work in a bunch of different industries, several different countries. I traveled the world. And one of the great things about GE was that the more you put into it, the more you got out of it. I probably worked 80 to 100 hour work weeks during my 20s. And uh, sometimes people will ask me, how did you get to become a public company CFO at the age of 37? And what's sort of implied in there sometimes is like, what shortcut did you take? What did you figure yeah. out that, right? And that there were no shortcuts. I just I just put, I worked two decades worth in one one decade basically. Uh, and, I, and I got to do that because GE just gave you all these opportunities for 
big jobs and, and big assignments. And I was I got to be a divisional CFO there, did that a few times, and then left in 2014 to become CFO for a private equity backed company. Did that for three years, led them through an exit, and then and in 2017 had the opportunity to come to Axon. Well, it sounds like um, the way you just described it, it sounds like it was a pretty smooth ride. But from the book, uh, it was clear that there were uh, lots of kind of ups and downs that you had to work your way through. One of the um, things that you talked about um, early on and throughout the book are the, the characteristics that make it possible to step into leadership and um, uh, work your way to the top or, or, or to achievement. In the book, you called them um, four uncoachable traits, which uh, you value highly, and it seems like they worked for you. What are those traits, and why are they uncoachable? Yeah, this was a really key learning, I, and, and it was something that I didn't start to crystallize, Bev, until the last few years, where when I became a manager and my organizations got bigger and bigger, and I started to look for things that I realized were traits that all my top performers had. Uh, and I really started to crystallize this notion that there are just some things that you can't coach. And I think before I jump into what they are, I want to make sure that I, I'm very clear about the distinction between something that's learnable versus coachable. I think these traits are learnable. Okay. Yeah. But there's a difference between something that you yourself can learn versus something that I believe I can coach in other people. And what I've learned is that I can't coach a strong sense of integrity, a sense of accountability someone who's collaborative and someone who's got a strong sense of positivity. And really where, where it started was um, when I was in business school, some of my peers pulled me aside. We did this 360 feedback session and the feedback that they have for me was, you're a little intense. You, you, uh, the, the phrase they used was, you don't suffer fools lightly. And, mm -hmm. and what I, I was taken aback by that because it wasn't how I wanted to come across. Um, I also, I didn't want to compromise my standards, but I also felt like there's got to be a way for me to strike a middle ground because I don't, I don't want to be that type of a person. I don't want to be that type of a leader where people just, that's the impression they have of me that I don't suffer fools lightly. And so I, I started to really think about, well, what's, wh what, sh what can I be okay with uh, as far as accepting something that is not maybe something I agree with and what are my non-negotiables? And what I kept coming back to is that the traits that I will I, I would never compromise on as far as having a standard is when someone is, and I, I, I'm sorry to be crass, but if someone's lazy, if they're selfish, if they're toxic, or if they're a cheater, right? Those four things to me, every time I encountered someone that had those traits, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. And I, what I realized was like, if someone had those traits, there was no way I'm, I was ever, because it speaks to their character, I was never going to coach them out of that. Yeah, And if that person on their own, right, if they had some trauma in their life or they had something happen that caused them to be that way, absolutely, they can learn, they can unlearn that, right? You can learn to not be lazy, right? You can, you, but that's something you've got to address yourself. You have to work on that for yourself, okay? And over time, as I started to crystallize those concepts, I didn't want to focus on the negative words. I really wanted to focus more on the, the positive aspects. And so I looked at the inverse of those things. And that's where I got integrity instead of cheating, accountability instead of laziness, 
collaboration instead of selfishness and positivity instead of toxicity. The other thing, uh, Bev, is that I, I spend a lot of time reading about psychology and I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing I learned in my study of the human mind and how it works is that people ascribe the words and traits that we hear to the person who's talking uh, when they're describing someone. So for example, if you're talking about someone else and you're, you're saying, oh, this person is lazy and selfish. Well, I'm going to subconsciously, whether I know it or not, ascribe the values of la being lazy and selfish to both you and the person you're describing. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was, you know, in a way, I not only want to focus on the positives, but I want people to associate those traits with me because I really believe them. They're really important to me. And I do want people to view me as high integrity, accountable, collaborative, et cetera. That, that phrase um, uh, caught my attention. I have been an executive. I've been an organizational leader, but these days, of course, I'm an executive coach. And uh, so when somebody says something's uncoachable, I have to pause a little bit. Uh, and that's when I started uh, about uh, thinking about the difference between learnability and coaching. I can help coach people on accountability, collaboration, and positivity, but it's a lot of work and it's too much work for a manager to take on. So those, I think you make a really good point that those are things that people certainly can learn. They can learn partly through reading. There's a lot of good stuff out there about positivity and how our brains work. I'm still up in the air about how learnable integrity is for some people, but I agree with you. Leaders cannot take the time and the responsibility. When people don't um, show those traits, it's you know it it's not going to work out well, probably. That's really well said. Well, I I like something else uh, that you said, and and that is that you talked about when you discovered that leadership is something that you could choose. It, it sounds like you started choosing leadership before you actually had people to lead. Is that right? That's, that's right. And I was fairly early in my career. I was entering a, another accelerated leadership program at GE. And one of my mentors pulled me aside before I started this, this week of boot camp where they give you this pretty intense training before they send you out into the world on these different assignments. He pulled me aside and said, Hey, listen, I want you to be a leader this week. And I just, I looked at him sort of puzzled and he said it again. He said, be a leader this week. And I didn't really understand until years and years later what he meant. And that said, being a leader is really a choice and you have to actively choose to be a leader. You don't, you don't, you don't automatically become a leader through a series of promotions or a title that you get. And it's a, I have found a common mistake that a lot of people make that they, they work really hard as an individual contributor for a number of years and they get to a management position where they're managing a team and maybe they're managing a team that have their own direct reports and you're, now you're managing a function and then maybe an organization. And some people just assume by virtue of their title that they're a leader. And that's not true. To be a leader, you have to really, there are lots of things you have to do. You have to care about your people. You have to understand what, what are their hopes and dreams? Where are they headed? How can you help them get there? It's not about what can they do for you. And it's not about, you know, you have a set of objectives that you need to accomplish and you're going to just flow those down to the organization and your people are interchangeable parts that are going to help you accomplish things. That that's not what leadership is about. Leadership is about really caring about your people. Um, and it's a choice that you have to make. It's not something that just automatically happens. 
I, I, I agree with you. And I think um, having been through many years of interns, um, I'm pretty confident that uh, when somebody is young, maybe a, a college student still uh, in their first professional um, opportunity, sometimes you can really spot that person's going to be a leader. It's certainly not because they're leading a task or anything like that. But it doesn't take long for a person to demonstrate that they will uh, reach to help. It's something as simple as spilling a cup of coffee or um, um, running an errand that you're not asked to do. When people uh, just keep looking for a way to contribute, you can get a sense of that leadership, can't you? That's exactly right. And I, I noticed that, that same trait, Bev, in the leaders that I really looked up to and learned the most from, that they were very empathetic and they really cared about me. So leadership and uh, displaying leadership can is trickier for some people than for others. I, I was a, a young woman lawyer in a situation where there are no other women lawyers. And I know uh, that was sometimes particularly t- uh, tough. And you described yourself when you were starting your career at GE as a brown man in a world which was still dominated by um, straight white guys. So you also... Um, yeah, you had some, um, I think, special challenges as you were starting out, didn't you? How, how did how did you notice them, and how did you navigate them? Yeah, I, and I didn't I didn't really appreciate them until I got into the workforce because, um, I you know, one of the one of the things was I think you don't really realize, uh, um, how central to American the the fabric of American life you know, alcohol is, and I, I don't drink. Okay. I, I grew up not drinking. It's just part of my religion. And, uh, when I got to the, you know, to the workforce and everyone's doing happy hours and then wine tasting events and, you know, you, you have drinks over dinner. And when you're not partaking in that, people look at you differently and, and they treat you differently subconsciously, sometimes not subconsciously, sometimes pretty overtly. Um, and, I just, I had to adapt to that in the sense that like, I, I never wanted to stray from my values. I always wanted to stay core to who I was, but I had to find ways to be comfortable, you know, going to a happy hour or being in a setting where people are drinking and not drinking, but finding a way to make other people feel comfortable and, uh, and, uh, and stay relevant and, and, and interesting myself and engaging, even though I'm not drinking with them. And I never got offended by it. I think other people felt uncomfortable drinking around me. And I just had to find a way. That's like one example I had to, you know, of uh, modifying my behavior. And then there were other little examples, you know, at GE, they were pretty big on, on like, you know, the, the dress code. Uh, I, I, one night had to pull an all nighter and I came in the next morning and I hadn't shaved and someone pulled me aside and said, you need to shave every single day. And like little things like that. Um, I think the, the, the core thing though, that I would want people to know is You've got to stay true to yourself, right? It's and it's okay to stay true to your values, but to but to be flexible enough and to adapt. And I think what you shouldn't do is just let your you know your individual flag fly uh, at at all costs. And what I mean by that is I've I've also witnessed some people come to organizations and companies where they have. Uh, been almost reticent about, no, this is how I'm going to dress, how I'm going to act, how I'm going to talk, and you need to adjust to me. And that that's not, you know, that's not really great either. Like if, if you're working somewhere where you don't feel comfortable, like you don't feel like you can be your authentic self, then it's not that company's fault. 
you need to go work somewhere where you can be your authentic self. Like don't expect, you know, others to mold around you. You do need to like, you need to stay true to your core values, but you also need to be flexible enough to adapt. Yeah, it, it can be delicate, but I, part of it is doing what it sounds like you did, which is picking your battles on things that really mattered. You were going to stay right. true to yourself, but um, on how you dress and um, how you are relaxed around alcohol, even if you're not drinking, it sounds like you learned to kind of go with the culture so that you weren't trying to um, make other people uncomfortable. It feels like you, you clearly sort of walk that narrow line, um, but it, I know it can be exhausting and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way, I guess, to grow as a leader, having to be conscious of those things. A lot of what um, you learned is from how other people responded to you. And it feels like you were quicker than a lot of people to understand the value of feedback. It's really important, even if you don't like it. You want to give, do um, you have any advice about how to cope with feedback when you're getting it? And then how, as you're growing as a leader, how you give feedback? Yeah, th- this is such an important topic on on getting feedback. One of the first things you've got to do is get in the right frame of mind and understand that feedback is a gift. That when someone's giving you feedback, you should listen to it. And I talk in the book about how not all feedback is good, but it, it all feedback is valuable because whether it's it's good or not or true or not, it's someone's perception of you, and that's a very very important data point for you to have. And the first thing you've got to do is just be able to listen to the feedback and ask questions about it and process it without being defensive. This is one of the biggest things. I still work with folks that are pretty senior that, that struggle with this. When I give them feedback, their first reaction is to get defensive and they they offer up you know, reasons or arguments as to why what I'm saying was maybe just a one-off and they're missing the bigger point, right? They're, they're missing the the lesson in the feedback that I'm trying to give them. So the first thing I'd say is even though there's a tendency to want to get defensive, don't get defensive. Just listen. Listen, take notes, and process. What you want to also ask for when you're getting feedback are examples. When someone will say, I've noticed you exhibit X behavior, say, okay, great. Could you give me an example of when you saw that? And if that person has done their work and their homework, then they should be able to give you examples. And if not, then you should ask them to go, you know, go find examples or come back with examples just so it'll make it a little bit more uh, relatable for you. And the other thing that I would encourage people to do, and this one I know feels uncomfortable, but it's okay to involve others when the feedback you're getting maybe doesn't feel fair. And there's a disconnect between how your boss views you and you know how you're viewing the feedback. If you really believe that there's a really big disconnect or the feedback isn't fair, if you have someone in your organization, if it's a performance coach or an HR person, it's okay to talk to that person and say, hey, I got this feedback and it wasn't really backed up with examples. Uh, I'd you know, love to get your take on this. And sometimes it's okay to have a three-way conversation because that helps the other person also understand. Like That's the thing people should understand. Like Their, their manager, their boss is not infallible. Like They also have their own biases that could be coloring the feedback. If you have a, a cut on your finger and you go to a doctor and the doctor says, well, we need to amputate your finger. You're, you're going to get a second, second opinion. Yeah, That's pretty yeah. drastic, right? Like you're not just going to take that person's word for it. And then on the, on the giving end, when you're a manager, it's very important that the feedback you give is actionable. And I, I talk about this in the book, how I got feedback around my 
how I learn, right? I had managers say that, you know, there's something wrong with the way you learn. I've had actually two or three managers tell me that. And I don't know what to do with that. Like, it's just, it's an, it's, it's insulting and maybe their intent was to insult me, but that's not really feedback that that's, there's nothing I can do with that. Um, if you know what you really want to do as, as a manager is the feedback you're giving someone, you want to give them an example so they can tie it back to something that, you know, an, an action or a setting where they can see, yep, I understand now that's when I exhibited that behavior. And then you also want to tell that person, here's how I would approach it. Here's something that you could do to work on. Uh, and because if, if feedback isn't actionable, then it's not really valuable. Yeah, I think that's really good um, advice to people when they're giving feedback is it's got to be specific and you've got to help point to a next step. And sometimes that next step is most helpful if it's kind of small. Sometimes you can kind of lead people to a bigger thing. So maybe you don't give feedback for absolutely everything all at one time. But if you're giving the feedback, you focus on the starting point. And if you're getting the feedback, you say, maybe try to negotiate a starting point. Would you agree with that? I Yeah, I, I agree with that. And this is, for me, one of the reasons why I try so hard to hire for those four traits we talked about. Because when when people have those traits, it, it just becomes so much easier because then the feedback you're giving them is around the things that you can coach in people, like helping people prioritize, helping them, you know, maybe communicate more crisply. Um, but but yeah, I would I would certainly agree that it's just um, it, it's very important. Actually, the other thing I'd say is it's also very important to be um, very to to be direct and and to not use ambiguous language. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to give someone tough feedback and you want to be positive. You want to be encouraging, but you don't want to muddle your message with, you know, with ambiguous words or flowery language. And it's a very delicate balance where you want to, you want to not, not be, you know, condescending or, or insulting, but you also want to be direct enough so the person understands the message. Yeah. You have to be clear it's not enough to speak in kind of soft ways because you feel bad for the person. You have to be clear enough and specific enough they can do something with it. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. You um, described how you kind of followed direction a bit, and then all of a sudden things changed for you, and you started thinking about, oh, I don't know, taking control of your own career. You, you talked about finding your North Star. What do you mean by finding your North Star? Yeah, there was a, a point in my career, Bev, where I, I took a job for a, a former manager of mine at a division of GE where I had never worked before and didn't really have any experience or, or network. And about a month after I got there, he left 
and went to go to a different division. And now I was here in this business where I had, I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any political capital or goodwill. And I was, I was feeling very, I was feeling lost and a little bit listless. And what I realized was what I had been doing up into that point in my career, about nine years into my career, I was just keeping my head down, working hard. And I assumed someone was going to tap me on my shoulder, just like my manager did and give me an opportunity for the next gig. And I realized if I kept doing that for the rest of my career, I was going to end up eventually, the natural end point of that is that you end up where other people want you to be, not where necessarily you want to be. And so I sat back and took stock of what I'd done in my career and where I wanted to go. And I thought about, well, where do, where do I want to end up? What is my North Star? What am I driving towards? And what I kept coming back to was I loved operating. I'm, I'm an operator at heart, even though I'm in finance what I really love is running a business and, and operating a business. And so for me, the the proxy for that, because I, I wanted a job to sort of as, uh, aspire to was CEO. And then I worked backwards from there and thought about, well, how do I get to be a CEO? I thought, well, I should probably rise to my to the top of my function in finance as a CFO, as opposed to going and getting a bunch of cross-functional experiences. And I just kept working backwards from there. And I thought about what experiences do I need to get to go be a CFO. And I, what, what that did for me, Bev, was it shifted my focus away from jobs and titles and promotions and more to what experiences do I need to get? And that became really important because I got a lot pickier about what came my way. And it was interesting because right after that happened, right after I did that, um, I started getting calls from recruiters and I had been thinking about leaving GE. This was around, you know, 2008, 2009 and GE had been hit pretty hard by the financial crisis and recruiters would call me and they'd offer me uh, bigger titles, more pay, a little bit bigger scope. And, and I turned them down because what I realized was th that really wasn't helping me on my ultimate trajectory. What I was really after were experiences that were going to keep me on my, on my trajectory to my North star. The other thing that it did for me was other people started viewing me differently. When, you know, when you're, when you're earlier on in your career and people ask you, where are you headed? You know, where's, where's your, what's, what is your North star? And you, you can't articulate that for yourself. Then it doesn't, people don't view you negatively, but the, but it's very different when you tell someone, I want to be a CEO someday, or I want to be a CFO or a chief marketing officer or a chief sales officer, whatever it is. Right, because when you're very clear about your destination, it's easier for people to give you directions. If you were in your car and you're driving around and you don't have a destination and you pull over and you ask someone for directions, the first thing they're going to ask you is, "Well, where are you headed?" And if you don't know, then how are they going to help you? And so it's the same thing with your career. You've got to know where you're going in order for other people to help you. And in in your case, it, it sounds like you focused in on um, being a. a CIO, but, or excuse me, a CFO, but you can still have a strong North Star if you can't name the title of the job you want, right? If you know that you want to do X and Y and Z and you have a learning agenda, um, then that can help you to do X and Y and Z. Those are the characteristics of the job. So even if you don't know your job title, that doesn't mean you can't have a North Star, right? That's absolutely right. And the other thing that I encourage people to do is to constantly evaluate and, and redefine their North Star. So I recently redefined my own, my own North Star because I feel like today in a lot of ways, 
I've achieved what I was trying to do. I'm, I'm, I'm not the CEO of Axon, but I own more than just finance. I own our IT and legal functions, our consumer business reports into me. And I'm, I feel like I'm running the company with our other executives because we're a very tight knit group. So I'm not driving towards that North Star anymore. Now my North Star, I redefined as uh, building and developing high performing teams that will drive transformative societal change. That's that's now my North Star. That's what I'm. That's what's guiding me. So I would encourage you. It's never too early to define your North Star, and you should always be reevaluating and making sure that you're driving towards the right thing. And it's okay to redefine it. Well, let, let's talk about that um, team you've built. You you had a very dramatic example that began your book, and you talked about it um, uh, throughout where you faced a crisis and everybody worked through it and, and did well. But the, um, you said you were able to do it because of your team that was resilient and resilient partly because they were so loyal. I was intrigued by this joining resiliency and loyalty. I kind of agree with it intuitively, but I hadn't thought about it in those terms. So how do loyalty and resiliency play together if you're trying to create a positive culture? Yeah, this is a great question. So uh, one thing we haven't talked about is that the reason, one, another reason that I, I index on those four traits is that for me, collectively, they are a, a heuristic or a, a shortcut for trust. And I know if you've got those four traits that I can trust you and that we can, you know, and you've heard about and everyone's read about the idea of moving at the speed of trust. And it, it's very true. When you work with people that you can trust, you just, you can, you can move and, and accomplish a lot. You can move more quickly and accomplish a lot more. And loyalty is sort of an offshoot of this. And it's not so much the employee's loyalty to you or to the company. What I found is that what's most important is the team's loyalty to each other. And when they feel loyalty to each other and they trust each other, that's where the teams become super resilient because you know people are going to have your backs if you're having a tough day or if you, you're in a situation where you maybe need someone to help you think through it. Uh, you need someone to help you you know, pick up the slack. There's a bunch of different ways this manifests itself. But loyalty becomes really important because what you don't want is a team of highly talented people that are working in silos and not really feeling loyal to each other because then you have a team of interchangeable parts and people you know, may leave uh, for a, a different opportunity or for more pay. But where the loyalty comes in for my team today, for example, they have a tremendous sense of loyalty, not only to each other, but also to our mission. Our mission at Axon is to protect life and to make the bullet obsolete. And the products that we sell to law enforcement are trying to reduce uh, you know, killing basically we like when you use a taser, that's a better outcome than using a firearm. We're, we're also trying to drive more transparency through the use of our body cameras. And this, so this loyalty to our mission is really important because everyone faces adversity. Everyone has a tough stretch in their career where they're wondering, am I, you know, really in the right spot? And that's where the loyalty comes in because people aren't necessarily wondering about each other and if they're going to end up, you know, leaving or going to a different place. I, I think that, uh, trust and loyalty, um, those characteristics and willingness to be transparent that we've sort of known collectively as a business culture uh, have really um, jumped into importance in the last year with working remotely. I, uh, my impression is that there are places that people have unexpectedly become remote workers, but because there was trust in the group, 
um, people really rose to the occasion. Where there's not that trust, there's much more stress. So I, I think you put your fingers early on a factor that a lot of leaders are just starting to think about now. Um, well, it, it feels like um, uh, you learned a lot of things along the way, and some of them you learned, you learned earlier than others. Um, if you're talking to young people or maybe some of our listeners today who are kind of early on in their career, um, is there any advice that you either got early or wish you got even earlier? Any any uh, piece of advice or two that you can leave our listeners who are, who are just starting to think about their North Star? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's two things. So the first one is, as we talked about, you have to define your North Star. And what I mean by that is not just in your head. Don't just sit back and think about what your North Star is. You should actually write it down. If you're a visual person, you should you know, uh, maybe create a, a magazine cover or a newspaper headline, something that you can look at and visualize. Visualization is such a powerful tool. I've done it throughout my career. It's been very useful for me. And it's a good way for you to really crystallize in your mind where it is that you're headed. And like I said, it's okay for you to keep redefining it, but it's a very important exercise for you to do so that you can articulate to other people where it is that you're headed so they can help you get there. And then the second thing I'd say is it is so critical for you to, especially early in your career, surround yourself with the right people and the right mentors, really. And I would say it is far more important for someone earlier in their career to go work for a great leader than it is for that person to go work for a great company. And it's tough sometimes to figure out like who great leaders are, but uh, you know, when you're, when you're starting out, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, you should look at the, the track record of how, who have they developed? Um, what is their approach to leadership? What's important to them? What are, you know, their core values and how are they going to take interest in your career and your development? Those things are so much more important than going to work for a big name company, uh, with a manager that's maybe not a great leader. I think that's good advice. And sometimes with your first job, it's hard to have much choice. But when you start looking around for opportunities, look for the leader who is going to be um, a help and not worry so much, uh, even about the job description sometimes. If you find a leader who's going to be your mentor, you're in a terrific position. Well, I love the book. Again, the title is... um, what they didn't tell me and uh, the subtitle is how to be a resilient leader and build teams you can trust Uh, i i recommend it as a good read as well as good advice and i I really appreciate your um, being here today to tell us about it thank you thanks so much for having me bev i really appreciate it today we've been talking with author and corporate cfo juada san about smart ways to chart the course of your own career I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's tip is that negative feedback can be helpful, even if it's hard to hear. When the feedback comes from your boss and whether or not it's fair, it provides clues about how you can be more successful in the future. Thank you for listening. I hope you come back soon.